0: So this morning I want to uh, continue and in fact uh, complete the exploration, complete only in the sense of it being the last talk, (laughs) complete the theme or shall I say give the last of three talks and explorations on the theme of self and not self and I'll give, uh, especially for those who haven't been here the last uh, one or both of the last two times, I will give uh, a kind of a summary of the territory that we've covered. And then, and then, uh, uh, as we did last time, explore some further territory. Uh, so basically, I'll um, say just a few words about the challenges and the difficulties of looking at self and not self, the possible confusions. I'll um, mention how In the teachings of the Buddha, there was an examination of self and a way of seeing the world, a way of seeing our experience without the construct of self. Um, I'll also go over some of the territory from last time, which was to um, identify three main forms that a more constricted sense of self uh, in, in which a more constricted sense of self appear appears. You know, one of the challenges of giving talks is to remember sentence construction so you get <laughs> grammar correctly. <laughs> As I can see my old high school English teacher, Miss Baker, was kind of the was over in the corner just <laughs> saying, get your verbs right, <laughs> or something. Um, so... To, to look at that those constructions of self that we looked at last time. And today, the, the area I want to particularly uh, look at, probably in the last half or two-thirds of the talk, is what actually is experience like when the construction of self is not present or not so present? What does it look like? And I'm going to talk particularly how about how it appears with qualities of awareness and... Uh, Clarity, in the Buddhist language we would also talk about emptiness, and also compassion. That these, in a sense, are the deeper qualities of our nature, which, in a sense, shine through, radiate through, as the sense of self, the constructed sense of self, gets mitigated. But there's also a sense of individuality. So I'll unpack that uh, uh, in in what I explore today. So first, briefly, uh, I've mentioned both times how this uh, theme of self and not-self is challenging at times. It goes into a language quite often, which is paradoxical. That's why if you look at the various spiritual traditions, you'll find talk about uh, no-self, not-self, true-self, authentic-self... um, in the Taoist tradition, they talk about the true human being of no title. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and, so, um, and, and again, I mentioned how even in the teachings of the Buddha, he, some, you know, that famous uh, dialogue in which someone asked him, is there a self? And he stayed silent. Then is there not a self? And he stayed silent. And he said that each of those um, positions can be extreme views which lead to suffering. And so that could um, be difficult, and it is. As in the, in the teaching role here, we frequently get questions about self. And I've suggested, as I suggested last time, that when we stay on a conceptual level, it does become paradoxical and sometimes confusing, but that when we bring it down to a more experiential level, some of the paradoxes get resolved. And I'll, I'll try to say more about that later that when we try to stay at the level of more direct experience, that's where I think the questions of self and not self get resolved. They don't so much get resolved intellectually, even though we can have some, uh, actually some clarity and some ways of understanding that uh, do resolve some of the paradoxes. Um, But that the emphasis here has been on suggesting practices that help us explore the theme experientially. So after the first... Uh, day or first morning on looking at self and not self, I encouraged practices very much like what we did in the guided meditation of just trying to look and see where self appears in a, what we might call a thick way. Where the self sort of, where some, and it usually is connected with, with either our suffering or our ego gloating. <laughs> uh, that, that self appears in a in kind of a thick way. And just to notice that, to explore what those experiences are like. Not so much to say, don't happen or get rid of them, but really the whole spirit of this is exploration. Um, Many teachers would say that it's not a question of hounding the self or getting rid of it or hounding the ego, because in a deep sense, it's a fiction. And... It's more to see how it appears as uh, somewhat of an overlay. Now one of the other challenges of this is that the concept of self that's being criticized in the teachings of the Buddha has a lot of different connotations than the concepts of self we use in contemporary Western culture. And that's also a place where confusion can arise. That when the Buddha was criticizing the self, he was criticizing a View which tended to be a kind of metaphysical view of the self as separate, autonomous, uh, <laughs> eternal, and in control of experience. And and when he was criticizing the self, all the passages that's the concept of self that he's criticizing. And so in Western culture and in Western psychology, we have rather different views of self. We do. There are a lot of views that have aspects of that sense of separateness and autonomy, total autonomy and so forth. And I think that is a kind of a fiction which is there in our culture in many ways. But there also is more of a sense of self that has to do with more with developing qualities of connection or empathy or developing one's gifts or so forth, which don't necessarily carry carry the same connotations that the Buddha was criticizing. And, and so that's another reason for confusion, and we, we can try to unpack that. And what we're what is really being criticized is a sense of self in which there's a strong sense of separation, sort of me versus the world, a sense of kind of a, a almost like a fictional heightened autonomy, um, a sense of almost like organizing. Experience so that I, you know, I accumulate pleasant experiences for myself and get rid of unpleasant experiences. Sort of the self as the kind of almost like the uh, separate being that turns everything into an objectified world, only there for my pleasure <laughs> and the avoidance of my pain. Which again, in the, in our culture, we sometimes do have that sense. You know, think of you know almost like advertisements on television, let's say, are almost there catering to that self. You know, buy this, you'll be happy. Get this product and you'll be able to handle whatever. Weeds, acne, and aging. (laughs) You know. Um, Preferably with one product. (laughs) You know. Um, So we saw that The Buddha invites us to examine this question again more experientially by looking at direct experience, and the teaching that we explored uh, two talks ago. And and by the way, I have seen that both the talks from last time are available on the web at Dharma Seed, and you can download them. And they're 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 out there, and presumably this one will be there pretty soon. So I was surprised; it's they're already up there on the web. Um, and so you can can, can see, uh, can listen. Um, and so we looked at the teaching of the five skandhas, or the, it's translated sometimes as aggregates, the five aspects of experience that are there, which can be seen without necessarily having a, a sense of self. And that has to do with the <laughs> aspects of uh, material experience, experience, uh, knowing the world through our senses, sights and sounds and touch and so forth, that is the first aggregate or the first, it's almost, we might say, the first type of experience. And the second had to do with the evaluative tone, the feeling tone of pleasant, unpleasant or neutral. The third had to do with perception, sort of recognizing uh, objects or recognizing parts of our experience based on memory. Uh, recognizing a tree, a per- given person, and so forth, the fourth had to do with thoughts and emotions, and the fifth is consciousness or the the knowing quality and What the suggestion was is that when we actually stay let 's say in meditation directly with experience, we find uh, we find only these aspects of experience, and we can also begin to see how self the concept of a rigid separate self is a kind of addition to experience based on sort of grabbing hold of a part of experience. So we might have a sensation in the body and we grab hold of that and say, that's bad, get rid of that. Or we have a pleasant experience, we grab hold and said, more, more, more. You know, think of eating. Uh, Uh... or having any kind of sensual experience. You know, we either like it and there's something that says I want more. And what we learn to do in meditation is simply to be present with that experience more directly. We learn to be with an unpleasant experience and we watch the conditioning of the mind that says no, 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 or yes, yes, yes. Horse base is out. <laughs> Those are kind of the three main options <laughs> or the three main forms that we're conditioned. So we looked we looked at that and we really invited that exploration of how do we see sort of a self appearing as an overlay on direct experience. And in meditation we're invited really to see if we can actually stay with the flow of experience. So we learn to stay there is sadness. We learn to say stay with sadness and just feel it without necessarily Going into a lot of stories, reacting in the body. And the same thing with any emotion. We learn how to be present with the more direct experience. And we learn the distinction between the more direct experience and the uh, interpretations we make and the ways that we uh, have thoughts and whole um, trains of thought and trains of emotion based on a reaction to a given part of experience. And we learn to stay more with the flow of experience and study all those interpretations, all the ways that we have one ten-second experience, and we go into a story for three hours. Done that recently? (laughs) You know, or, or and that and that's one of the reasons we meditate. We develop concentration so we can actually notice that because the otherwise all this stuff is happening automatically and somewhat unconsciously, and we we actually meditate so we can actually see all this more clearly now last time, I added another uh, aspect a few aspects of this, which was to actually identify some of the main ways that uh, we find a kind of um, fixated self or a kind of a self that is um, uh, clearly in addition to experience that sort of becomes that really basically stops the flow of experience that freezes the flow of experience around some grasping or pushing away which tends to be compulsive and unconscious. And uh, I identified three ways that this appears. And again, I think it's very helpful to think of each of these as uh, almost op- occurring when there's a flow of experience, a natural flow of experience, and in some way we can't be with that. We can't be with that natural flow, sometimes because there's too much fear or there's too much pain or there's... Um, a need to grasp onto it and something happens other than the flow of experience the flow of experience without these additions <laughs> so for example the well the the three forms that i mentioned last time were first what we might call psychological fixations and the second were uh, ways that experience gets uh, kind of coagulated because of social conditioning, and the third was the way that we tend to have a, a rigid distinction of subject and object between self and other, and these are interrelated, but I want to talk about briefly about each of them to remind us because last time we looked at them in more depth so the first kind the first kind of coagulation is what I talked about as psychological fixations and can be linked with um, developmental issues. Each of us have something like this where we've had some way uh, typically as children that we could not be with our experience. Often because it was confusing or painful. And so I mentioned examples last time that we might feel... um, we might feel unsupported. Our parents may might not be there in a way that really gives us the kind of support or care or love that we need. And there might be a certain kind of fear which develops as a very young child which causes us to shut down. Those of you who are psychologists know about what are would be called attachment disorders. You know, where this is using attachment in a, a Western sense as something positive. <laughs> more the attachment to the to the the parent. And where when that doesn't occur, there is something that happens where the child basically uh, can't be with experience and adds certain overlays which then appear throughout the person's life until they're dealt with. And what's interesting from a meditative point of view is that Western psychology and psychotherapy typically heals these places where experience is fixated by gradually teaching one to actually be with the original flow of experience, even if it's painful, and learn how to be with it with presence, which actually is healing. So, so it's interesting that we're actually taken back to learn to be with the flow of experience without it getting fixed, because what happens when there are inadequate resources, when there's pain, when, let's say, uh, a parent isn't there, I feel abandoned, or the other example I gave is when something coming up in my being as a child is, is unacceptable for my parents. Maybe I get angry a lot or I'm wild and it's scary for the parent. So the parent says, don't be like that and suppresses it. And I learn to censor myself. And I learn that if I'm actually uh, with that flow of experience, I won't get love and so we, there are many, many varieties in which this happens, but what basically occurs is that the flow of experience gets stuffed or covered over, and we learn, we each internalize how to navigate so that we don't get close to that territory. Those are called defense mechanisms. And so for each of us, we have these ways that we can't be with experience. And so the practices that we do or the, the training can take a while. In meditation, we would want to be alert for places in which these fixations arise, typically as some kind of suffering. You know, where it seems to be that it could be some really, really strong reaction to a person or a strong reaction to something that's happening. And in using mindfulness, we just start to notice this. As we get stabilized in meditation... We, become, we want to become experts on our uh, patterns of reactivity. At a certain level of maturity in practice, we get really interested in how we're reactive. Sometimes initially in meditation, we just want to get peace and find stability and have some relief from the chattering mind. And that's a really valuable intention and really a crucial foundation that we have to come back to over and over again. But when we have some of that we actually can get really interested in the places where we get confused or lost or lost or where we suffer and it actually is a turning point in practice when we're actually interested in our patterns of reactivity and we're not we're not uh, we have maybe have some stability some degree of access to peace and we can do that so we can look at these patterns in meditation we can also look at them in and do more sustained psychological work and probably Many or even most of us have this is you know maybe maybe two thirds of us here are therapists i don 't know <laughs> isn 't it said that two out of every three people in Marin is a therapist <laughs> or at least a half <laughs> i won't i won 't ask us to raise hands <laughs> but but that kind of and I'm, and i 'm also sorry if i 'm uh, Making jokes about therapists in Marin is a, is a fat target, that, but I, I hope it's not offensive. I apologize if it is. But, but in any case, that kind of psychological work is probably, I'm imagining that is something many of us have done with some of the parts of our experience which, which tend to be fixated. And so it's a very crucial work. It can be a long-term work, but it's really, really central for examining self and not-self and opening up to some of the deeper aspects of our being. So that's the first form that self-appears, and there are, a lot, there are a lot of them, it's, and it's really crucial work. I also mentioned how a second form is the, uh, the different ways that we uh, form a self based on social conditioning through all the roles that we have, our role as uh, this or that kind of worker this or that kind of employment, this or that kind of uh, work, Uh, being a man, a woman, uh, a gay, a straight, a bisexual person. Each of those in themselves needn't lead to a strong sense of self, but typically they do. (laughs) Typically there's certain conditioning and we identify in certain ways. We think this is me, you know, and... You know, it could be with a particular ethnicity. It could be that, as I mentioned last time, I brought the example of someone who I know who is a young woman who's blind, and she wrote this very courageous essay about how about her own internalization of what she gets from people. You know, that could lead to a very, she called it, projective identification. She gets all these projections. Oh, it must be so hard to be a blind person. You know pity, thinking that she 's less than, and so forth, and she can feel that you can imagine feel that very directly actually she 's a highly creative, incredibly bright, compassionate person in training as a therapist you know and 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 yet she gets these projections, uh, and we all get projections like this right, and different kinds based on appearances, based on ethnicity, based on gender, and a lot of them can be incredibly oppressive, part of this work of uh, exploring the self is to see where that appears in ourselves and to know them and transform them you know think of the uh early consciousness raising groups and the women's liberation movement very much trying to identify where people had internalized stuff about themselves you know uh i'm a woman i can't do that or you know uh i have to be in a relationship or i will die <coughs> something like that. Could, and, and again, that's one example. It could be many, uh, many different forms. And so looking at those forms of how we internalize things socially, really, really crucial to seeing the structures of the self. It also, it's very interesting, the this, this self also appears, I think, in social, uh, social life on a collective level. There's a... Uh, writer and Buddhist teacher named David Loy, who's written a series of books, he talks about not just the ego, but the wego, <laughs> W-E-G-O. He talks about how there's a way that there can be a diluted sense of self for a group or a collective. He talks about nationalism, for example, as a, as a diluted sense of self. You know, who are maybe the identity as a particular with with a particular so-called race, or so forth. That (laughs) that this sense of we go is another form that even appears beyond individuals, Mm. and that is part of uh, the structure of delusion. What is his name again? David Loy L O Y. Some very should be some books in the bookstore. Really, uh, very. very inspiring and clear author on, on these issues. And the, and the practices that we would do sometimes could be very deep practice. People who work with internalized, what we might call internalized oppression, it can take years to kind of clear out what's in there. One's identity as a man, a woman, an African-American, you know, a Latino, Latina. There's a lot of stuff that's coming at people all the time that you have to deal with. Otherwise, it coagulates either in a positive or negative uh, artificial sense of self, which can really, you know, again, it, the idea is that it gets in the way of the flow of experience in, in kind of obvious ways. You know, someone, we have uh, uh, we have that kind of internalized depression, and I think, oh, I'm not capable of this. And we get into all sorts of fear or ways that we get stuck, that we don't go certain places. And the last area was what I called the kind of the sense of strong sense of separation between self and other. That might be when I compare myself to other people or when I clearly, <coughs> um, clearly, uh, you know, as it were, um, identify my own self-interest as way above that of another person, you know, or, or uh, basically am greedy to, to accumulate pleasant experiences for myself. But it's very deep in the conditioning. I remember a story that I heard from the journalist uh, Chris Hedges. Some of you may know his work. He, he's written books on war. He was a war correspondent in the former Yugoslavia, he wrote a book called "The You Know War." Something like "War is a War is a Force That Gives Us Meaning." Very, very beautiful work. And he was talking about a time when he was a war correspondent in the former Yugoslavia, and he was just standing next to a really good friend, and he heard a shot go out, and he pushed the friend in front of him, himself, and he said it was a very telling moment. It was like this deep conditioning to. Um, to um, value someone else less than himself—very intense, right? And so it's strong. It's a strong uh, conditioning. And yet we also know that there are opposites to that. There are opposites to that. I just saw in the newspaper yesterday. Some of you may have seen there was a obituary for a woman named Irene, Irina Sendler. This is just from yesterday's paper, who died at the age of 98 in Poland. She saved. Uh, in Warsaw, in, 19, in the 19, when Warsaw was occupied by the Nazis, she went out of her way to save, at, at total risk to herself, she saved 2,300 Jewish children by organizing a team of people who smuggled them out from the Warsaw Ghetto in baskets, you know. And she was caught by the Gestapo and tortured, you know. And yet she lived to 98. She was nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize. You know. And, and she, this is what she said. She, she saw it as quite matter-of-fact. And We'll actually come back to this because it really is pointing to some... When, when a lot of these structures of self and the things get worked through, what shines through is a kind of compassion as an expression of a basic nature. This is what she said. Very matter-of-factly. I think she said this when she was 97 every child saved with my help and the help of all the wonderful secret messengers she had a team of 20 people, mostly women who today are no longer living every child saved with my help and the help of all the wonderful secret messengers who today are no longer living it is the justification of my existence on this earth and not a title to glory and not a title to glory in other words not something for the ego to wrap itself around She's just saying it's really almost like the what it means to be human, to respond like that. So that actually is a good segue to... I wanted to identify really four areas that are present when some of these structures of self get worked through. And, and to work through them is, for most of us, a lifetime of, of practice. But we, we still, there are even... For all of us, I think we've had many, many glimpses and maybe sustained periods when some of those constrictive structures of self are no longer present. Do you remember how I've mentioned both times those kind of in-the-flow experiences where we're doing something we love, maybe we're with someone we love, and there's just this beautiful flow of experience without much sense of self or self-image. And I talked about uh, how this might appear as an artist, as a musician, uh, you know it could be as a teacher, it could be... In anything we do, we have those kind of experiences where there's just the flow of experience. We're using our gifts maximally. It feels very alive, and, and, uh, and yet we know them. We tend to use words like peak experiences, and I think the direction is towards having those be more and more common. You know, and it's not that you know we're totally always going to be totally in the flow, so we have no sense of self, so we forget our zip code, forget where our keys to our car are. I think I think I think that uh, sense of being in the flow can be very connected with very ordinary experience. You know, with washing the dishes, with raising a child, and so forth. It's really is the, do those additions to experience that are connected with a kind of constriction an inability to actually be with the flow, when those get worked through, what's there? So I want to say that there are four, there are four uh, qualities which are there. <laughs> the first is a sense of um, individuality, a kind of uh, what we might call a, sen- a, rel- a relative sense of self. The second is a kind of awareness a sense of clarity of mind, the third is a sense what we might call of emptiness in the Buddhist sense of a lack of anything being solid and separate, and the fourth is compassion. and I would say that these are the marks of a certain level of maturity of being that we that we uh that we're really developing here, and I think each of these we can probably identify with. So first of all, when we have worked through a great, uh, a lot of those structures of self that I mentioned, it's not that we turn into a blob. One of the fears we sometimes hear in people at retreats is, if I just stay with present experience and um, meditate all the time, am I going to turn into a blob? That just has no interest, no passion, no energy, no nothing. Just kind of, you know, I don't know, like a, I don't know, like a video camera or something, <laughs> you know. And it actually doesn't seem to be the case that when you look to people who are quite aware, quite developed, there's a lot of individuality, and they can actually there there can be a sense of self, but not a constricted sense of self. There can be a sense of individuality. This person does it this way. This person has this quality. This person is, this person is passionate. This person is, has a deep heart. This person has this or that quality. So the qualities can be there. We each have our gifts, and I think the gifts are preserved, but they're actually, I think, enhanced and maybe not so much overlaid with grasping. I think the gifts manifest more fully, and they're different for different people. And we can actually know, oh, you know, and we can know, I can know my my social history. I can know that I'm a man or a woman or from this or that ethnic group. It's not like I forget all that stuff, but I don't, if I work through it, I don't so much grasp onto it. It's there, but I'm not grasping or pushing away. Does that make some sense? And I think we've all experienced that. So there can be that sense... (laughs) In the Tibetan tradition, it's sometimes called the mere self. <laughs> there's a self, but it's called mere, or it could be called relative, or it's something that's there, and there is a kind of individuality, but it's there's no there's not the grasping. It's just a kind of awareness. Yeah, these are these are the patterns. This is who I am, but there's not a kind of uh, making of a huge identity around it, and there's not that those those structures of the self that I mentioned aren't present or are greatly diminished. The second second quality I want to mention is the quality of awareness. That this is something that when we practice gets gets strongly cultivated. And there's a sense that uh, as we stay with the flow of experience... Uh, awareness becomes stronger. It becomes more, more almost luminous. It's said, there's this wonderful passage in the, one of the texts of the Buddha about the qualities of the luminosity of our being. Luminous is this mind and heart, brightly shining, but it is colored by the attachments that visit it. This unlearned people do not really understand, and so they don't cultivate the mind and heart. Luminous is this mind and heart brightly shining and it is free of the attachments that visit it. This, the noble follower of the way really understands. For them, there is cultivation of the mind. So there's a sense that as we uh, work through some of these more constrictive aspects of self, something else starts to emanate from us, which I know we've all experienced. We sometimes call it love. And in fact, in the text, that quality of luminosity of being is linked with metta, it's taken to be a deep quality of our being that shines through when there aren't those constrictions and becomes more and more present. It's why we practice, in part. It's taken to be something very deep in our nature, this quality of awareness. And in, in some of the traditions, it's taken to be a quality that actually connects us with what we might call the deathless, that there's something about awareness which actually goes beyond even this individuality, and connects us with all of being and when, it's, when, it's, um, when there's attunement in a certain way. This is what, uh, let's see, this is what one of the great Thai teachers in the forest tradition, Achan Mahabua, who I had the privilege of visiting his monastery in, in Thailand, he says this. He says that there's a kind of awareness which can be with phenomena but the awareness has a kind of a a deep quality to it. Whatever arises has to vanish. Whatever is true, whatever is a natural principle in itself, in and of itself, won't vanish. He says, the pure mind of awareness won't vanish. Everything of every sort may vanish, but that which knows they're vanishing doesn't vanish. (laughs) This vanishes, that vanishes, but the one who knows they're vanishing doesn't vanish. <laughs> and so this is this is a experience that we cultivate in practice this experience of really being with the flow of experience. And then on that basis there're kind of two ways to tune into experience and I mentioned this last time in the in the discussion. And this relates to the third quality which is that which is called emptiness, which just doesn't mean lack of meaning. But it has to do with the way that emptiness is really a synonym for there being no solid self and no totally separate object. It's really about interdependence, about how everything is connected. And uh, there's a the myth about everything being separate that comes partly through our language. You know, We have words that make it seem like tree, Donald and Marty are all separate. But there's a sense in which when there's a deeper understanding, there is a sense that they are interconnected and that the sense of solidity is a kind of a fiction that is partly an artifact of our language, partly an artifact of of how our vision works as well. And so there can be, as we uh, have less of that sense of self and are more, let's say, just with the flow of experience, just sitting here, noticing, okay, just noticing, okay, sensation in my leg, and we in, in our mindfulness practice, we sometimes talk about the flow of choiceless awareness when the mind is quiet, we can have a sense just of sitting here and, and noticing leg sensation, a bubble of a thought, you know just ha- things happening really, really quickly, la like that, and we can actually sit back and watch the flow, and from that place. We can see that each of those appearing phenomena has in a sense no solidity they 're like a little bubble in experience. We think about the we think about solidity a lot because of the way I think a lot because of our language and because of the way our vision works, but that when we actually stay in experience, things get less solid, and there's more of a flow of experience, and from that. That's really, the emptiness has to do with really two qualities. When we look outwardly, we just see a lot of flowing phenomena. In one of the texts from, let's see where this is, from the 5th century, it's said that when we really stay with the flow of phenomena and experience, we don't find a self. Self is an overlay This is, Buddha Buddha Gosa says, no doer of the deeds is found. Empty phenomena roll on. (laughs) Empty phenomena roll on. And there can be a sense, and yet they're interdependent phenomena. So when we go outward and look at the phenomena, there's a sense of the interdependence and they're empty of any separate self. That's what emptiness means. On a more mundane level, Thich Nhat Han invites, especially children. He said he holds an orange and said, "Here's an orange. Can you see the clouds that led to this orange growing? That produced the rain that led to the rain?" And they say yes. Can you see the soil that's connected with this orange? Yes. Can you see the person who brought the orange uh, to the market? Yes. And it's actually a meditation that's really a beautiful one where we take an ordinary object and contemplate the web of interdependence that made possible that appear- the appearance of that object right here. It's actually a very simple meditation, which is very profound. You could do it with your shirt. Just because what, what do we typically do? We typically just look at, look at my shirt. And I kind of like in a dumb way, I say, shirt. Sure. <laughs> you know? But it's a beautiful meditation to actually sit there and contemplate the chain of interdependence. It changes things when you look at that. So we shift from an attitude of there being the separate self here, looking out, seeing separate objects, wondering how I can manipulate them to gain pleasure and avoid pain. And we shift more to a sense of this interdependent flow of phenomena that I'm connected with, that there's more like a field of phenomena and uh, that is actually what is meant by emptiness. In the great text by the philosopher Nargajana from the second century, he says emptiness is the same as interdependence, a sense of interdependence. And yet when we look inwardly, that emptiness appears in terms of awareness having no objects in it. That's the second sense of emptiness. We look at awareness and it is simply a knowing quality that in itself has no object and no self. It's just this open awareness. And out of that comes the fourth quality, which I'll end with, which is the quality of compassion. That when one actually notices this interdependent flow more fully and is connected with it and notices how each of us have tendencies to not be aware of that flow, but to get fixated and to think that we're entirely separate and to suffer, that there's a great compassion which arises, knowing how we all are in a kind of predicament because of our conditioning, how we don't see clearly. And there becomes this, uh, there develops this large heart and the capacity to respond, really. It's very much like the, the Vietnamese Buddhists during the time of the Vietnam War, said that there were three qualities which are the heart of our being. Wisdom, which is more like the clear seeing, the sense of emptiness, compassion, and courage. And it's like these are the, these are the, uh, the human birthright. And, and as we explore that sense of uh, self, and as we work through some of the ways that the self is particularly constricting those other qualities start to open up more and they start to fill our being more and more. And that's why we're here, really. That's why we practice that we develop further in those qualities of having individuality and, in fact, having let the individuality be quite free and expressive, but just not the constrictive sense of self. And then that sense of awareness, going to that luminosity, and the sense of the emptiness and interdependence, and the sense, of, um, the sense of compassion, which lets us respond to both ourselves and to others, knowing that we all do get caught, and yet we also can, can practice. So I'll stop there and, and thank you very much for your attention. Please, yeah. Uh, Maybe I missed it, but did you say where the um, article is available? That the young woman, the blind woman, wrote. Is I didn't say. She just sent it to me privately. It was Uh. in yesterday's Times. Oh, that was the that was the woman from Poland. But you were talking about the woman, uh, the the blind woman. Yeah. Um, uh, I could ask her <laughs> if I could share it more. she just sent it to me privately because we had a, we've had long discussions about that uh, and and I knew that she was working on a project for I don't know whether it's for a course or a master's thesis or something, but she she just sent it to me. Would you uh, want me to ask her if if okay, Cause yeah, I think it's really nice it's beautiful work, it's very powerful, and it comes directly out of her experience, you know with I mean, very courageous. Very courageous, yeah. Okay, I'll write. I'll write down a note to ask her. Her name is Courtney. Other reflections or questions or comments, please, yeah. Yeah. As opposed to I need to get in front of that which is what I wanted to do or take hugs and and it was like all of a sudden I could see that we're all in this together. Yeah. It was really helpful. Yeah, actually a lot of aspects. I mean, if you're having if you're have, feeling like you're not having enough um stimuli for your practice, just go out and drive on the freeways more. <laughs> <laughs> But I think you'd have to do so with the intention to be getting somewhere uh, but yeah it's really it's actually what I love is that this these ordinary situations actually are exactly the place to look at all of what we're talking about because think of it a traffic jam okay traffic jam there's a flow of experience, and some part of us says no, <laughs> or we we separate ourselves from another and say i will i will." Maximize my advantage, and often not. You know, it's one thing if we have an emergency that we need to deal with. That's one thing, but mostly it's just to maximize my pleasure, and typically not caring what happens to other people. It, so it's it's like a very traffic jams are very strong expressions for most of us of the self coagulating, the self other split, and so forth, and and then and yet, you know, what you're what we could do, I think it's what you're suggesting, is we can both, we can be in a traffic jam and just let me feel impatience. That's actually what we're resisting, mostly. We don't want to feel it. Let me feel impatience. Let me just be here and open to the flow. Because typically the self appears when we don't want to be with some part of the flow of experience. Whether historically, and I'm not saying that when we were kids and we had these really hard experiences, somehow we should have had it together to be with the flow of experience so we could be open to overwhelming pain. <laughs> you know, it's, it's very understandable why we close down and fixate and so forth. So we have to have compassion for that. But in these kind of situations, we can open to that flow and say, and really, two things. Let me open to the flow and feel what's there. There might be just something impatience We don't want to feel it. And then we can also have that sense of compassion that you were bringing up. So it's a great example. I don't know if we can... Some of you may be specialists in... Well, I guess there have been books. and t- I know Sylvia did an uh, audio talk that was published on... I think it was called Road Sage. <laughs> 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 yeah, please. Yeah. Well, uh, just to for 15 years to Oakland until yeah. recently, and it used to be just a terrible experience. And, you know, as I was coming out here and practicing more, I would realize I, I had this epiphany about the people that were cutting me off and how miserable they were. And I actually began to feel compassion. Yeah. Like, oh, I'm glad I'm not that person, but of course there was also that sense of superiority. <laughs> 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 I'm so cool, go after, you know. I'm so cool, I can be compassionate. <laughs> I actually had another question. Yeah, It's a great observation, though. Yeah. Because, yeah, I think I'm, when I'm, if I could just say one thing and then come back to you, just, I think I want to really keep emphasizing how all of what we're talking about can be simplified to an inability to really be with the flow of experience. I think it all can be simplified to that, much of it unconscious. And if we keep that in our minds, then we can just say, what can I open to here that I don't want to f- face? So, so please, yeah. Um, so this is about the idea that um, when we're perceiving or having feelings, um, we can be sort of less of ourselves, you mm-hmm. know, and observing that. And I get that, you know, you hear the turkey or the, you know, have a feeling on your arm, but with thoughts during meditation, it feels like they're very personal, so mm-hmm. it's automatically a kind of self. Mm-hmm. It, it's, it's my thought, you mm-hmm. know, so I don't, if you could just talk about that for a minute. <laughs> just for a minute. <laughs> <laughs> no, I know you have to catch a plane, so. <laughs> Okay. Um, yeah, maybe, maybe I'll finish with this and then catch my plane, <laughs> but um, it's a great question because you know it 's an interesting question to ask what makes us identify or how do we get constricted and um, how you know in one of the technical terms we use is identification how do how is there a kind of identification of a particular experience with me or mine or i and that 's a lot of what we examine, and with thoughts, it seems to be. They, they're so subtle that the identification often is instantaneous. Often is. It is something we can work with in practice, and that's why in our meditation practice, we just continually notice thinking. We continually notice, and we start getting a sense of the patterns of the thoughts. So I'm a, you know, I work in practice, and again, the beginning level would just be to notice, oh, there's thinking then over time we gradually can say, oh, there's that pattern. Oh, there's this pattern. When we do that enough, in a the, in the sense, we can actually, almost like in our meditation practice, just sit back and watch it and say, oh, there's that happening again. And so it, it, there can be a little less identification, often a lot less identification, but we ha- it only comes from really noticing it over and over again. When the mind gets quite concentrated... The thoughts sometimes just occur just as little bubbles, and it 's quite interesting there just to actually be in the field of awareness and watch a thought and have it take just a microsecond and know, "Oh, that was a thought that, was, that if I followed it, was going to lead to a three minute monologue about this, <laughs> you know, and we can actually know that sometimes, and it becomes less we become less identified with it. Um, but when it uh, initially, it's quite there, and then we can, you know, we can get to the place where we, where we just notice the thoughts, and we don't, you know, it, let's say that we are in one of our habits where we uh, something happens, and we we notice, let's say that we have a pattern of almost like of worrying, okay? Something happens, and it triggers the mind to worry. If I know my patterns well, I can sort of say, oh, I'm starting to worry. And I can actually see that and maybe not take it so seriously. It's like the bumper sticker, which I know I've seen in Berkeley, which says, don't believe it just because you thought it. <laughs> but that only can happen when we have that kind of awareness. And, and so we get to a place where, I mean, again, I, I'll invoke, maybe this is a good way to end, I'll invoke my high school English teacher, Miss Baker. Um. She must be with the immortals at this point. She was, she wasn't young when she was teaching me, Um, but she said something. I don't. I hope this is a good connection. (laughs) She said something that really stuck with me. She said when we were reading, we you know we were reading literature, and she said that um, the author of a book or the author of a short story or poem doesn't have any privileged ability to interpret the book or the poem or the story, meaning that it's just kind of out there and that person's eye is just as valid as anyone else's. And I hope, I hope you see the connection there, but there's a <laughs> sense that it, the, the book is just like the flowing thoughts and, um, and it's kind of out there and we can just notice it and notice the patterns and we can also notice the tendency to identify with it, and then that's something which, as we uh, cultivate more, we especially when we know the patterns that lead to suffering. When one of those patterns comes, we can actually we we have a little light bulb that goes on and say, "Oh, there's you know, self pattern number twenty-three appearing again. <laughs> uh-huh. I know that leads to suffering. I'm not going to follow it. That's 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 how practice works." through the basis of continual mindfulness, we see the patterns more, we know them more, we cease to identify, and the unconscious quality of them gets reduced. And, and the benefit of that is that we, can, we don't need to follow the ones that actually cause suffering. It might be the compulsive worrying or the cat- catastrophizing or the quick reactive anger. And we notice it And it's subtle, but we the something and we could say a lot more about that, but we notice it and then we the identification isn't there in the same way. And so thoughts are more subtle than some other parts of our experience. But over time with practice we can work with them so that they too are part of that ongoing flow which we notice. And then we we act on that flow basically. More. This is really maybe to summarize. The whole purpose of this is to be able to be with the flow of experience and act on it more out of wisdom, compassion, and courage than out of conditioning. Mm-hmm. That's 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 why we do this. More out of condition, more, less out of conditioning, and the residues of past pain. In other words, to act out of freedom. Yeah. yeah. So. Thank you so much. And we'll just end with a brief um, moment or two. So, just reflecting on what may have been helpful for you and any intentions which come out of this. It may be to really look, continue to look carefully at these forms of self, to work with this as a practice, to be more and more with that flow of experience. So let any intentions be there for a moment. And we remember that we practice, as we would know from exploring this theme, we practice not just for ourselves but for others. And we offer the fruits of our learning, our insight, our exploration outward beyond these walls for the benefit and the healing and the freedom of all beings. Thank you for listening.